Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. About uh, 45 minutes from right now, the Toronto Maple Leafs are going to skate onto the ice in Montreal for the first game of the NHL season. For them, anyway, there were a couple games last night. And once again, all Leaf fans have gathered around the hearth holding their breath and clutching pearls and crossing their fingers that maybe this is the year not to win a Stanley cup. I mean, most Leaf fans have long given up on that one to win a round in the playoffs would be more than enough. Uh, David Alter is publisher and reporter of inside the Maple Leafs for SI. He joins us now, David, thanks for this today. I appreciate you having me on Uh, inside the Maple Leafs. You know, if you could change it just a little to inside the head of the Maple Leafs, I'd be fascinated (laughs) because I got to believe even the players, some of them, are wondering what the regular season's about and whether it's going to matter at the end. I mean, I know it's just the beginning, but we're only thinking about the end, aren't we? You know, talking to a lot of fans, they certainly kind of have this, I don't want to say apathy, but this feeling of, okay, we already know what this team is in the regular season and the core is the same and it's pretty much the status quo. So let's just get to April already. But the players' mentality and what has to be drilled into their heads is, you know, it's not that easy. They still have to replicate what they did before, and that doesn't come without hard work. And, you know, a lot of people forget that that first couple of weeks of the season, the Leafs had a, a record under 500, and things were really tense around that locker room. So it, it's it's easy to just kind of push this aside and get it to April. But, you know, that saying that if you're not in, if you're staying the same – uh, then you're not improving. Well, I mean, the Leafs are starting the same, and the other teams look to have improved. So it could be quite the the mountain to try and get up there. All, all the prognosticators have them getting to uh, the top of the regular season again, but I don't think it's going to be as easy as people think. And it's it's really just get to the playoffs and then what you do now to learn and figure out what your identity is before the playoffs, I think, is, is really what this – year is kind of going to be about Mm. because no one's really going to stick with this they just really kind of want to get on with it one of the stories that i i had not realized this and i read a piece in the star today and i'm still in that mindset where they're saying oh you know the leafs are still a young team they're still coming along the leafs are now numerically the fourth oldest team in the league now that's thrown off a little bit because you have a few old guys by nhl standards that really drive that number up but the point is, when you're talking about how the beginning of the year is a struggle, they've already had Muzzin hurt. They've already had Tavares hurt. Uh, you got Giordano, who's 39 or so. I mean, a few key injuries. And then what you're talking about, about this is no sure thing. It becomes interesting. It really does. And look, the Leafs, because of cap constraints and everything else, they're only traveling slash rolling with the absolute minimum 20 players on the active roster because even when everyone is healthy, they can't fit everybody under the $82.5 million salary cap. That's not an exclusive Toronto problem. A lot of teams are kind of having that with the cap and the economics being such that things kind of have to flatten out. So you take that, you take the injuries, everyone's a little bit older. Yeah, some of those guys that they're gambling on that they're expected to eat up a lot of minutes are going to be key to whether this team can kind of make it to the next level mm. or not. But their core players, the big four forwards in Austin Matthews, Mitch Marner, William Nylander, well, not John, not John Tavares, but when you factor him and Morgan Riley, they're still in their 20s. And this is this is the peak time for them to perform. And so that's really the gamble here that the other guys that I mentioned are now in the peak years of their their hockey 
careers in their lives that they can really break out for even better seasons than they've already had and help push the team forward. This team is such a, 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 a test of whether as a fan, if you're a glass half, a glass half full or glass half empty fan, because there's lots of reasons to be pessimistic. Heaven knows uh, every spring for the last 19 years is more than enough reason to be pessimistic. I happen to be on the other side, not necessarily that they're going to roll to the cup or anything, but the number one issue everyone's talking about is goaltending. I actually think their goaltending is going to be considerably better than it has been. Maybe I'm, a, maybe I'm Looney Tunes, but I think it's going to be better. You know what? Your opinion is shared by most people I talk to at this point before the season starts than what the same opinion was when they first acquired Matt Murray uh, in early to mid-July. Because when the, when the move first happened, a lot of people were kind of, I don't want to say shocked, but like, really? Like, mm-hmm. this is a guy who didn't That's perform very get. well. Yeah. Right? Like, and, and the health, and you're moving on from that. But then, you know, there was only two years as opposed to Jack Campbell was going to command five. He got five on the open market with the Edmonton Oilers. So they kind of had to see what they can do for short term. So there's that. And then when they were able to get Ilya Samsonov, uh, strictly because Washington moved on from their goaltending situation and elected to sign Stanley Cup champion Darcy Kemper, that that gave solid depth for the Leafs where you looked at the two together and you're like, you know what? This tandem, when it comes to depth, is probably thicker than it's been in previous years where maybe you had a bonafide number one, but you didn't really feel great about it after that, where maybe the depth is a little bit better now. And so I think if they, if they didn't have Samsonov in this, it would have been, it could have potentially been a disaster. But when you have two guys who have NHL experience like they do, and then Murray, of course, with the cups and really what I think is ultimately why they got Matt Murray, then it, it makes sense in that regard. So they have a goaltender who's still relatively young. It's a wild card if he can stay healthy. But if the Leafs get to the playoffs, and I'm still saying if, even though they're they're expected to, um, and they have other situations with their goaltending, even if Sam Sonoff beats Murray, the fact is they have that card to play in the playoffs and the pressure situations that might make people feel better about it than before when it came down to certain goals that you thought "Eh, maybe that goaltender should have saved. Yeah. And I I agree with you wholeheartedly. I mean, it's not that uh, Jack Campbell may be better than either one, but every time Jack Campbell didn't play last year, I think most, most fans said, well, that's going to be a loss. There there was no confidence that the backup, whoever it was at whatever time of the year was going to win a game. Now I think you can have that belief. Yeah, you can. And look, I mean, Jack Campbell's had his struggles too. There were a couple of months where he really struggled with his confidence. And and then, you know, it came out later that maybe he was a little bit hurt, but still it was it was ugly. Like I remember a 10-8 game for the yeah, for the, the wings with the wings in Detroit. And um, you know, Jack Campbell had to get pulled out of a winning situation, which I don't think I've ever seen before. Like pulled for non-injury reasons, that is, right? So it was strictly performance and the team was in a winning situation and Peter Morazic, his issue last year was he just couldn't stay healthy, played one game, got hurt in the third period, came back a few weeks later, got, got hurt in that next game and didn't show up again for months. So it was a disaster in that regard. So yeah, there's, there's a lot 
there, but there are injury concerns with Matt Murray as well. Like we're going to see, we're going to see tonight and we're going to see he's, he's played the Montreal Canadians a lot in the last week and a half. So this makes sense for him to start this one. I think he's going to be given every opportunity to take most of the starts this year, but it's really going to come down to performance because both of these guys really are capable of usurping each other based on what we've seen in the last couple of years. Which is a good thing to have that competition. Uh, Dave, we've got to run in a second, but just before I let you go, I mean, it, it's very clear talking that you are hedging a little bit here when you've said if, and I and I look, it's, it's a very reasonable position, I think, to take. I, I'm wondering, though, if you taking that position and your caution around this team is based on what you've seen at camp this year or if it's historical that this is who they have been in the past and therefore I don't think I can properly jump on board and ring their bell too strongly. I think a little bit of it is historical. And um, look, I just don't think there's been a lot of adversity with this team with the exception of the first couple of weeks of last season. They got over that and they were able to kind of fly through it where I actually think it would serve this team well for the playoffs if they had more adversity to deal with this season, something where they really kind of have to battle through some sort of pain issue or something where they kind of have to fight for their lives, because that's the mentality that has to be adopted in the playoffs. And you saw it with Florida. And the one stat I'll leave you with is this, the last four president's trophy winners, that is the team that has picked up the most points in the regular season all four of those have lost four consecutive playoff games en route to elimination. And I just think that for what the Leafs have accomplished in the regular season, I think they need some sort of adversity situation that really makes them not take what they have for granted in order to learn the lessons from yesteryear. David Alter, publisher and reporter from inside the Maple Leafs. Uh, Really appreciate it, David. Enjoy the season. Good luck. Opening night tonight. Uh, Have a good time. Appreciate it. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. A new poll that has been done for uh, by Leger has found that many people, a majority, 65% of Canadians, say they aren't really sure about finances and they say it's largely because they didn't learn it from their parents. Their parents had a relationship with money that wasn't necessarily either healthy or passed along or explained. And therefore now they really don't know what to do when it comes to basics like budgeting and how to spend money, how to save money, all those kinds of basic, basic things. This is an issue that's been going on in this province for a while. Uh, Just in the last two or three years, the Ford government announced that financial literacy was going to be brought back as a course in our schools. I want to bring in Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business, Um, someone who, and I thought, you know, I want to bring on Marvin today because he teaches economics and other things to do with this in university. And Marvin, I'd be fascinated to know when people show up in university and they are talking about money. Now, I know there's personal finances and there's financial and economic theory, but do you get the sense that most people really have a good grasp of money? No. The short answer to your question, Scott, is no. Let me give you a quick example of this. You know, to come to come to university, it costs money. And I am always amazed how many students and their parents begin to talk about how they're going to finance a university education, or for that matter, any post-secondary education, once the child gets into grade 11. Now, I'm just going to tell you my story. Both of my parents believed in education. My father didn't finish high school. My mother did, but didn't have any post-secondary. 
Uh, I can remember when I was four years old, I was told why I couldn't spend the Christmas money I received and the birthday money I received because it was all going into a bank account to pay for my post-secondary education. And I can remember cheerfully as an eight-year-old, nine-year-old buying a Canada savings bond because that was going to pay for university. And then later in life, it was GICs, Guaranteed Investment Certificates. But I, I knew from an early age that there was a reason why I didn't get to to buy a bike and maybe do some of the other things that other kids did because this was money that we were setting aside. And in fact, my parents laid it out for me. I couldn't do post-secondary education if we didn't do this. My mother was a stay-at-home mom. My dad was a shift worker. There just wasn't going to be the money any other way. And even then, frankly, if I didn't boost that up a little bit with a couple of scholarships, I wasn't going to post-secondary. So we were laser focused on this for my first 20 years on the planet. But I'm amazed how many children, the students, get to age 15, 16, and only then do parents start talking about it. Even though that student might have had a summer job since they were 12 or 13, and I say to parents, where did that money go? Oh, well, you know, I wanted them to have fun. I wanted them to be a kid, not be burdened by adult things. And I said, wow, you're not doing them any favor by doing that. Yeah, you know, like to me, it seems as though, and this is a very weird comparison, all right? So I grant you before I even say it, but the things that parents don't like to talk about with their kids, apparently, is they don't want to talk about sex. We want to make the teachers have to do that. And clearly, we don't feel comfortable, according to this survey, talking about money. And I don't know if it's because the parents feel they don't know or if they feel that it's just something that you figure out. I'm not really sure why that is because my parents talked to me about money and, and it was never uncomfortable. It was never weird like your parents, but it clearly the majority of Canadian kids are saying my parents didn't do it. I just don't understand why that wouldn't be. Well, I think there's three reasons behind this, if I can, Scott. Uh, first, there are a group of parents who they themselves will candidly admit, I'm not good managing money. I don't want to give my son or daughter any advice because I'm not coming from a good place here. I don't balance my checkbook. I don't, um, you know, uh, pay all the credit card at time. I'm not good figuring out a mortgage. So I can't, I'm kind of out of my league here. So that's one group. There's a second group who struggled. They struggled. They balance. They, they, they handle their money well, but they struggle. And I don't want to burden the kids. Let the kids have fun, be fun, be those sorts of things. And there's a third group who just don't know how to open the topic with the kids. And it, it was also applied to sex the same way. Where, what's your starting point? Where do you sit down? And, and since it doesn't seem to come up, they just don't do it. And yet all three cases, those are the worst possible answers. And let me just do one more thing here. I know you mentioned that the province is talking about teaching financial literacy, but I've always found that if what the teacher teaches is not reinforced at home, it falls on deaf ears. Teachers don't teach the kids swear words, and yet many children at a very early age have picked up on them. Where has that come from? Parents are the biggest influencers on children. And if you reinforce good grammar, if you reinforce writing skills, we bemoan the fact that nobody writes in cursive anymore. Well, do you write in cursive? Are you reinforcing that? If you don't, as parents, step forward, the lesson taught at school will just go in one ear and out the other. It really is an interesting question to me that you just raised, that if a parent doesn't do well with money, that they maybe don't think that they have anything to talk about or shouldn't explain it, 
but boy, Marvin, I got to believe that there are lots of things that we as parents don't do all that well. And yet we still teach, um, you know, we might, we might do poorly at something and yet we still teach our child, you know, we may jaywalk, but we still teach our kid don't cross the street without looking both ways. Like there's things, if you go down the list, I, I just don't understand why money would not be included there. It just, it's, it just seems like the missing thing. And Scott, let's just add one other thing. You know, you are not God when you're a parent. You are fallible. And I think children do like to hear where you have made mistakes and how you have worked around this. Uh, If you try to set yourself up as as being omniscient, all-knowing, all-seeing, always right, that's not a good role model either. So have that conversation and, and lay those things out. Here's what I did well. Here's something I wish I could have done over. If I had been in your position, I would have been doing this at that time. Instead, I graduated university and I had twenty. I started $20,000 in the hole. If I had done this instead, I would have been so much better off. That's, that doesn't make you seem terrible. It actually says you can learn from these lessons and you can pass them on to your students. The part about this also that I find really interesting is this this poll that was done, again, Leger did this, as 65% say their parents didn't really give them the tools as I'm reading this. If you're saying that, that I don't think my parents gave me the tools, if you read between the lines, what I'm reading is I kind of wish they had. I, I'm not hearing in this that people are saying, oh no, my parents don't talk about it because you don't talk about money and I'm kind of glad they left me to f- sort this out myself. It's the opposite. They're, if you read between the lines, they are saying, I wish they had taught me this. I don't think anyone's upset when they get taught about money. Maybe you were upset about not being able to buy a bike, but there was a reason for it. And there was a lesson yes. with it. Yes, and once it was explained to me, I never brought it up again. Uh, similarly, later in life, I guess maybe I didn't learn lessons that well. Uh, there was a grade 11 ski trip. Everybody was going on the ski trip. Mom, Dad, can I go on the ski trip? My father grabbed a piece of paper and said, now here's the money that's coming in. Here's the money that's going out. Where's the room for that ski trip? And if you want it, we'll have to give up this and this. To do. I said, sorry, I didn't mean to bring it up. I never brought it up again because I had to be reminded of our, our circumstance. But you're right. I think most people would like to handle it better. Let me give you another quick example. It's possible. Now, don't I know that's not our topic tonight, but it's possible in 2023 we're going to face a recession. There are many young people who have never lived through a recession. And when I say young people, I'm talking about people under the age of 25. They don't know what it is. They don't know how to handle it. I lived through the Great Recession of 1982 when interest rates got up to 21%. I bought my first house. My mortgage was 11.25%. When I see people whining, I say that, whining about a 4% mortgage, I go, I only wished my first mortgage was 4%. But if you've never experienced it, you've got no you've got no way to cope with it. And I think if we do have a recession in 2023, you're going to hear a lot of people t- saying the exact same thing. I don't know what to do with it. This, again, is where parents can step forward and say, okay, we didn't talk about it, but the last time there was a recession... This is what we had to do to get through it. And we hid some of these things from you, but this is what we had to do. And you'll need to do the same thing. Marvin Ryder from the DeGroot School of Business. A great insight. Thank you for this. Glad to be with you. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Of all the sporting events that I've ever watched, not in person, but just watched, there is one that, to me, always has stood out as the the one 
that no matter what I did, no matter how much I prepared, no matter how much I tried, this one I, I could never do. It just, it seemed entirely out of reach. Now there are others, of course. There's the one that was a a, a show on Netflix about a relay, about a, a, a super marathon. Could never do that. The 100-mile Badlands Marathon could never do that. But this one is is a little more mainstream. It's the Kona Ironman Triathlon. It is a long swim, a long bike ride, and then a marathon. All in the blazing heat of Hawaii, because why wouldn't you do that just to make it more difficult? And I'll tell you, anyone who's ever watched this understands, and when you see the people finish, you are not only in awe that they have just finished, because some people, their bodies have, if you've ever watched these, you, they, they give out. It's, it's, it, it takes such an amazing toll. But for the people who win, to me anyway, you're just in awe that you could do this. Well, a Hamilton woman, a nurse in Hamilton, went down to Hawaii, qualified, went down to Hawaii. And on Thursday, she didn't just finish the event. She won her age group. She came in first in the women's 60 to 64 age group, best in the world in her age group. Her name is Sharon McKinnon. She joins us now. Sharon, thanks for doing this today. Well, thanks so much for your interest. And I think you could do this race. If you just trained for it, you'd be okay. Oh, Sharon, you have absolutely no idea how lazy I am. <laughs> this requires a level of commitment. I got to tell you, I mean, and I'm, I'm halfway kidding, but this requires a level of commitment that I, I, I think you overestimate or maybe underestimate what it is that you've done. Cause I, I think that very few people really could. Okay. Yeah, it is a it is a big commitment, but it's it is uh, achievable when you look at uh, some of the folks that maybe not do Kona or qualify for Kona, but other Ironman events, all shapes, sizes, ages. It's it is uh, it's amazing what the human can humans can do if they put their mind to something. Anything how, possible. How did you end up in this sport? Because it, it to me it doesn't seem like the kind of sport that you just see one day, maybe you do see it one day and just go out and decide to try it. Was there a path into this for you? Yeah, for sure. Um, I started running I, uh, at the age of 10. I really loved to run. It, it was something I just loved to do. So I ran track and cross country all through school and uh, university and after university. And then uh, I did my first uh, triathlon in Sarnia, the Blue Water Triathlon, which is a fantastic Olympic distance triathlon in 1985. And after that, I was kind of hooked. So I, when I was still uh, finishing up my running career, I dabbled in triathlons and started out in the shorter distances. And then gradually, as I got older and a little bit slower, gravitated to the longer distances and did my, full, my first full Ironman distance in 2014 and qualified for Kona. Uh, did that and then did a second long distance in 2016 and then another qualifying uh, time in uh, for Kona in 2017 and and finished there and then this was uh, my third trip back to Kona and uh, I was on a bit more of a mission this time hoping to finish in the top uh, 10 this year so I was over the moon um, to actually come away with a, a first place in my age group. When you set a target like that and you say, I want to finish top 10, is there a way to know what the rest of the world is doing? Like, or are, are you basing it just on the times of the finishers in previous years or can you track who else is going to be there and how they've done? 
Yeah, so um, I've I've been very uh, fortunate in um, having some success in my age, like in my age group, uh, in qualifying events for um, Kona, and uh, have done did quite well. Had a great season this year, and so I kind of, uh, you know, knew that it was a possibility to go after at least top twenty, if not top ten. And um, yeah, you can certainly. Uh, you know, check out the the results of, of all the Ironman events um, online, and sort of track where people are going. It's a bit difficult to sort of uh, you know look at the times because the courses are all so different, as are the conditions. So you never really know what what you're going to be faced with on race day in terms of mm. uh, conditions and how you're doing. Well, let's talk about conditions because we know when you go to Kona, it's in Hawaii, so it's going to be hot. Um, how hot is it when you get out on the course? Yeah, so on race day, the women, most of the, uh, all the women raced on uh, Thursday. This was the first year of a two-day format, and then the men and uh, went on um, fr- uh, Saturday. We did have a few men in our, the older men were racing in our, uh, on our day, but it was about 28 degrees. However, out on the uh, the highway with the black asphalt i would think that it was probably well over 30 and of course the humidity in uh hawaii is is quite high so you're dealing not only with the the heat but also the humidity so uh, the conditions were challenging and we also had some winds it's an island in the middle of the ocean so you're you it it would be rare to have sort of a quiet non-breezy day um and and we did uh have some wind uh going up to the turnaround on the bike to uh Javi. so it was um you know not it the conditions could have been worse but they were uh not gentle conditions uh the day that we raced on Thursday and and I read somewhere when they talked about the wind that uh, again it's Hawaii it's the tropics that this was not a uh, a pleasant, refreshing, cool breeze that's blowing in. It's hot wind. So you're, you're hot, it's humid, and now you're getting a hot wind blowing on you too. Yeah, it feels like I've done some training in Lanzarote and done that Ironman a couple of times, and I sort of talk about it being like a giant hairdryer right in your face. <laughs> it's, it's so hot, and um, it, uh, it certainly was, was, was pretty warm on, on race day uh, for us. How... The, the the number one thing that I always think of, and when I've talked to people about this, Sharon, it's always the number one question is, how do you keep going? Because there, there's no way that it's not uncomfortable. It, it, we know it's uncomfortable. You can't run. I mean, you went for 12 hours, 25 minutes, and 47 seconds without really stopping. So um, it, it, it's all it's going to be uncomfortable. How do you, what's going on in your head that you are not stopping because many people would say, no, it doesn't feel good. I've got to take a break. What, what, what happens in your brain that you can keep going? Well, I think a lot of it is the training preparation that you're doing leading up to uh, the day. So um, often some of the training days can be very grueling and uh, sometimes worse than the actual race day. As I mentioned, the, the race is really a celebration of the training journey that I've been on for several months and you really need to be prepared for anything that can happen on race day. You just, you just don't know what's going to happen. It's a long day. Um, I'm not a, not finishing is not an option for me. That's just not how I'm wired. Um, and so it's just, you know, taking each moment as it comes and really enjoying and embracing whatever the day has to offer. And, 
yeah, it's painful. Some bits of it are painful and uncomfortable, but you work through them. And um, really, what a privilege and honor it is to be able to uh, train and, and race for something like this. Uh, it's, I'm very grateful for the experience I've had. There's a photo, uh, people could find this photo online, it's, it's out there, but there's a photo of you crossing the finish line and it, you, there is, you look like you've just come out of going for a dip in the ocean. I mean, that you are, and, and again, it, it speaks to the exertion, it speaks to the heat, it speaks to how long you've been going, it speaks to an awful lot of things, but it, it really does, it, it really does take a toll to finish something like this. Yes, it does. And the the finish uh, at the uh, World Championships in Kona is like none other in terms of the finish line. There's so many people on both sides of the finish line and sort of bringing you home on Alihi Jive. And it is incredible, that energy. Um, but uh, that's, the finish line is, is so sweet um, in any Ironman, but very, very special in Kona. There, there have been people who, uh, we've seen them before, for people who have watched this, whose, whose bodies are basically failing them as they get to the end, and with that line of people are still trying to finish. I mean, I, I suppose that, as you said, once you've gotten to this point, the expectation is that you're going to finish no matter what. Oh, for sure. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Do you, so I know there are people who don't, though, and have you ever not finished an Ironman? No, no, that's just not an option for me. <laughs> and you say that, is, and, and I, you say yeah. that, and I believe that's the psychology, but your bo- some people's body, it just like your body just can't do it. Yeah, yeah. And, and again, it is a long day and, um, you know, some people run into issues, whether it's a mechanical issue on the bike, it could be a physical issue where, you know, maybe they've had challenges with uh, fueling uh, nutritionally. So, yeah, there are a number of of reasons and some people, you know, know, no, I've had enough. I need to, I need to pull out. Um, And actually when I raced in Lanzarote in May, my mom and dad, they weren't there, but they were following along and they both said when I got home, didn't you, were there ever times that you just wanted to quit? And I said, oh my God, no. Really? Not even, not not even a... Who I am, no, I'm going to finish and, you know finish with grace and dignity, whatever that looks like on that any given day. See, again, I would say not quitting is a incredibly admirable thing. It takes incredible discipline and that you are driven and all those things, but never even thinking that I want to quit that. I see that. I just don't understand that, that, that thought would not even, whether you're going to eliminate it from your mind, but that it would never come into your mind. I find that amazing. (laughs) Yeah, crazy maybe. I don't know. <laughs> well, maybe. I mean, you talked about your training. You're a nurse here in Hamilton. You work for public health. How do you train for this? Because you've got a full-time job. Yeah, so it's been, uh, I, I'd say during COVID, especially this last, I would say, 18 months, it's, uh, well, actually the last two and a half years, what am I talking about? The, really, the only thing I've been doing is working and uh, working and training because there's really been nothing else to do. Um, so yeah, it, it, it does require a fair bit of discipline and, um, you know, you do, there are sacrifices to be made, right? You can't be uh, going out and, and partying when you're trying to, uh, put no. in the training. So I, I usually do a workout in the morning before work and then a second workout after work. 
Um, and then the long stuff happens on your days off um, in terms of the long bikes, the long runs. And then, of course, rest is really important. So I, I, I try to get in about 12 workouts a week uh, with the swim, bike, and run. And then, of course, in the non-competitive season, I'm doing some weight training as well. Is it different? Um, I, well, I mean, I can say your age. Normally, that would be impolite. But since oh, you won no. a certain category, it's a, you're, so you're 60. Is it different at 60 than it would be at 30 in how you train? Yes, absolutely. Uh, at 30, I was still uh, racing on the track. And, um, you know, your body's still pretty uh, forgiving at age 30. Whereas mm. at 60, um, I've had to be much more mindful of making sure that... Uh, rest between hard workouts and having more rest between hard workouts. Whereas, you know, when you're 30, you can hammer several days in a row hard because your body bounces back. That doesn't happen at 60. So yeah, you just adjust the, you, you adjust the training um, and make sure that your recovery is built in to allow your body to uh, do what it needs to do um, to get you ready for an event like an Ironman. What do you do now, Sharon? Now that you've won, you've won the biggest, the, the most impressive event in the world. Anyone who's done a triathlon knows about this. This is the top of the mountaintop. Um, do you say, well, next year I want to get a better time? Or do you say, i got to find a new challenge now? Um, it's a really great question. Right now I'm focused, like immediately what I'm focused on is I, I'm competing at the world half Ironman championships in St. George, Utah in less than three weeks. So that I'm just uh, need to focus on getting through that. So, you know, rest a little bit, stay sharp with the training a little bit, do that event and then figure out what's next. Um, my understanding is uh, all of the winners um, of the uh, Ironman, you do have a, a, a an automatic qualifying spot uh, to the next year's race. That was not on my radar for 2023, but I think it's going to be pretty hard to turn that down um, because it means that I wouldn't have to do a second Ironman next year and worry about qualifying. It would be all about prepping for Kona in October of 2023. And uh, yeah, so I'm going to wait and make that decision um, after the uh, half Ironman World Championships in St. George. And what about the other thing you could potentially do with this? Um, there's a guy in town, Jeff Joslin, who fought in the UFC. He's an MMA fighter. He fought in the UFC. <laughs> having experienced, having been at that level, so you get into the highest level and did well, he was able to parlay that into coaching because now, you know, people want to go and be coached by someone who's had that level of success. Is that something that you could do when, when this is on your resume? Would people come and say, Sharon, can you please coach me or teach me or train me? Because clearly you have a pretty good idea what you're doing. Um, yeah, I've, I've, uh, my husband is, is my coach actually he has been for a number of years, actually for most of my athletic career. And I have certainly coached alongside him for, for a lot of years it's not something, so I like to help out people as they need to. I've got a nice little training group that uh, I work out with, but I don't, I don't think that would be um, something that I would sort of, you know, go all in. I, I'm still a, a, an aging athlete that has some more things uh, hmm. to, to do, whether that's the long distance or going back to some shorter distances, but I would still like to very much compete as long as I'm physically uh, able to, it's 
I, well, I love and, it. It's so much fun. And there's one other thing, and we got to wrap up here, but there's one other thing to that. And let me use another example of another athlete. When Wayne Gretzky quit playing and went into coaching, uh, it, it appeared like it was pretty frustrating for him because not everyone could do the things he did. You, you, you know, I know at the beginning you said everyone could do this. I don't think everyone could. And I wonder if you would be, if you would look at someone and say, look, keep going. You, you can do it. I know you can because I can. I don't know that everyone has the ability that you do to put that pain down and to work through it and to not have any doubts about it. I think, I think you are unique. <laughs> Well, I don't know. I, I am a believer in if people put their mind to something and, and set a goal and really want to do it, you can train, you, you can, you, you can do almost anything. So mm. I'll, I'll, I'll agree to disagree, agree to disagree with you on that one. I have no argument. Want, let me know when you decide you want to do one. I'd be happy to help you along. I have no argument having not done it. Hey, I should ask you before you go, what do you win for finishing first in the Ironman in your age group? Oh my gosh, a beautiful, um, it's a beautiful uh, a, a bowl that is uh, made of wood that has um, cultural significance in Hawaii, and um, it's absolutely stunning. It it uh, it came in, I'm so glad I put it in my, in my carry-on, because none of our luggage has arrived yet. None of, we didn't come home with any, I don't know where it is, but... I was very grateful. Yeah, so it's beautiful. I'll have to send you, I'll send you a picture of it. It's, it's absolutely gorgeous. It's going to find a spot in the home somewhere that you can stare at it all the time. Sitting on the grand piano right now. Uh, perfect. There you go. Uh, listen, it's a, it's an absolutely remarkable achievement. Sharon McKinnon winning her age group for the Iron, the Kona Ironman Triathlon. Truly one of the greatest endurance events that you will find out there. Uh, Sharon, well done. This is, it, it's, it is amazing what you did. Well, uh, well done. Congratulations. Thank you very much. I really appreciate your interest in the story. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.